1948, when Israel was founded as a nation, as far as known Jewish believers in Jesus, it was, it was a handful. I mean, you could count probably on a couple of hands how many were known. And even if, uh, if, if I was there 10 years ago and asked about how many native-born Israelis there were, you maybe have 500 or something like that. If you had youth gatherings, the numbers were, were very, very small. So there has been an increase. Uh, some of it's come through immigration. Russian Jewish believers have come in and, and others have come in. But the most recent estimate was a little higher than folks were expecting. We thought the number was around 20,000, total number of Jewish believers in Israel, uh, and, a, and a percentage of those being native-born, so it's still relatively small. The, the most recent survey indicated it's more like 30,000. But remember, though, if the population, the Jewish population of Israel right now is, is just over 6 million, right? So 1% would be 600,000, correct? A, a tenth of a percent would be 6,000. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with, with um, you know, a very, very fractional number saying 30,000. But yes, God is moving. Israelis are coming to faith. Native-born Israelis are coming to faith. There are many Israeli young people. But when they're raised in the Messianic Jewish home, their perception of the world is almost like they're, they're part of a cult. So they have to really be reinforced in terms of the truth of what they believe. Interestingly, uh, Israel has shows like, same like uh, America's Got Talent or American Idol or The Voice or these type of shows. And in the last couple of years, two young Messianic Jewish women have made it high up there, but have been open that they are Jewish believers in Jesus. And their testimonies have gotten out. So that's really helped get things out. And then there's little movements among the very, very, very religious here and there, but it's still secret. It's, it, for the most part, it's secret because if you came out in your beliefs, you'd be kicked out of your community or worse. So things are happening. God is moving, but it's still small compared to what really needs to happen. So six million Jews living in Israel yeah. and at most 30,000. Yeah, that we can estimate. 30,000. 30, yeah, majority. Yeah. Bob, did you want to say something? Well, you know what? I just texted my friend asking him how many churches he's planted in Israel because I know that when he went over there recently, um, he, he, was, he was telling me that you know, he has some exciting stories of you know, God moving among the Orthodox, but he didn't get back to me. So, For the most part, though, like one of our, one of our grads who's, who's done really well with planting house churches, most of it has been with Arabs, Bedouins, Muslims, and things like that. They are seeing breakthroughs. When I was in Israel last, I met with um, a young Orthodox Jewish man, you know, totally Orthodox, came to faith, and is a solid believer now. And, you know, you always hear someone was very religious, you're not really sure. So I started to quote to him from the beginning of the Mishnah, which would be a document that he, I mean, multi-volume thing that he would learn early on. So I started quoting from it, and he continued the quote well beyond me. So I was just testing to see how religious he was. But it was the real deal. So it's here and there, here and there, here and there. So things are happening, but you should be encouraged, but desperate to see more. Yeah, you, and an interesting thing is that there are Muslims who are waking up with visions of Jesus at the foot of their beds in Israel, in Israel, who were former Israel Jew haters who are now coming to the Messiah and having a desire to be witnesses to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a, that's a remarkable thing. How God may even be using the Arab nations, the sons of Ishmael, <laughs> to be a source 
of uh, jealousy to the Jewish people where Messiah is concerned. So really be praying. You know, Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for all those who believe to the Jew first and also to the nations. And unfortunately, I've got many friends who are evangelists but probably have seen little to no evangelism where Jewish people are concerned. It's, it, it, it's not even in their head that, that Jewish people need to be saved. They've been called to the nations, but there's a, there's a spiritual, biblical uh, priority where Israel is concerned. And I really encourage you to be praying uh, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You guys okay? Okay, next question. Why should Christians have a special inclination or care for Israel? I would just like to start this off, and obviously we've, we've been addressing this in the conference, but both of my parents are Jews. My father from an Orthodox Jewish home, my mom from a conservative Jewish home. And I was born in a Jewish home. I went to Hebrew school every Tuesday and Thursday. I went to Hebrew school after I went to public school to study for bar mitzvah. My parents got radically saved. And when I was 10 years old, I accepted the Lord as the Messiah. And then we moved, we promptly moved from suburban New Haven, Connecticut to northern Minnesota where there were really very, very few Jews and certainly no synagogues within a 100-mile radius. I never got bar mitzvahed, but as a Jew, I had no special inclination or care for Israel because of what I perceived in the church where Israel was concerned. And I just want to say this. Don't let peripheral Israel-related things keep you from having a godly inclination or care for Israel. Because I think the devil will do everything he can to make Israel insignificant in the eyes of believers because Israel is an ultimate issue. Because God chose one nation, as has been pointed out, God chose one nation to bless all nations. Obviously, without Israel, we'd have no Bible, we'd have no covenants, we'd have no glory, we'd have no Messiah. But I just want to say in my own weakness and and, and here I, I was working with these two guys traveling around the world with with mike brown he would speak on israel not um not a lot i would say between 10 and 20 percent of the time in the midst of revival he'd have an israel related message and can i just tell you i would sit in the front row and think to myself, you should really be talking about something that means is more relevant to us, the people. But I'm telling you, when God gripped my heart where Israel is concerned, <laughs> I don't think that there's anything more relevant to our salvation than having a heart for Israel. So for me personally, coming from a place of being Jewish without inclination or care for Israel, I've been, I've been, I've been ruined. And, and I see Israel as an ultimate issue. Yeah, so just obviously very quick, there is a, a spiritual indebtedness to Israel because of the gospel and the scriptures. 
come from Israel, so that's why there should be a concern to reach them with the message. Paul did write that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles, so it is their message about their Messiah, so they should be brought the message. And then a, a third thing is that uh, church history has pushed Jews away from Jesus and given a wrong impression that it behooves us to bring the right message and give a real picture of who Jesus is. And then lastly, uh, Israel's salvation means life from the dead. Israel's salvation is pivotal in terms of the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. So if you want to see Jesus return, the dead raised, you want to reach out to Israel also. And God brought the Jewish people back to the land. The devil wants to destroy them. It's another reason to be standing with Israel. Okay. Can, can I um, just say quickly, our church planting friend finally got back to me. So in the, in the last, yeah, finally, sorry for the distraction. In the last 10 years, um, he says we've planted several that fell apart, but they have eight groups among Israeli Sabras, um, and some of the folks they've trained have planted 20 more house churches among Russian Jews. Now, these are relatively small groups, probably between eight and 20 people, uh, and that's within 10 years. So it's like you said, it's, it's, it's something we're thankful for, relative to the larger number it's minuscule it's slow going but it is something it is breakthrough and it's the beginning of something that will eventually be massive 30 30 house churches among arabs wow so you yeah uh bro i think this you'd probably be able to speak to this especially because it's the topic of your book what are the dangers of the belief that the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation especially when ministering to the lost in Israel? A few things. And again, we know that there are fine believers that hold to a pre-trib rapture. Even on our leadership team, do you know what everyone believes among all of our guys, the faculty, and what they each believe? No, so we've been together over 20 years, and we don't even know. No, it's just, it's never come up, right? Have you and I ever discussed, I don't even know exactly the details of what you, you probably don't know. What you believe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and anyway, um, so we have friends, colleagues that are pre-trib. I, I don't mean to say something that's derogatory in general, but if there are dangers, this, these would be some. One is an escapist mentality, that we're out of here any minute. Uh, it happens on my radio show all the time. I'll talk about the latest crazy development in the society and the latest bad news, and someone will call in and say, brother, we're out of here any minute. This is the last moment, the last days. So I got saved in 71. The, the big famous book then was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, which had just come out. And we knew the signs are, you know, right here at the door. Everything's falling into place. We're out of here any minute. So you don't have long-term cultural vision because of that, because you think it's all going down. Why, why try to stop it? Uh, we're the last generation. It's all going down. And, and then your kids and grandkids are raised in an environment that you've created by having an escapist mentality. That's one problem. Second problem is that you may not be prepared for testing in hard times. You know, the, the Christians who were blown up in Sri Lanka two weeks ago were not raptured out in advance. The Christians getting butchered in Nigeria by Fulani herdsmen on a daily basis have not been raptured out in advance. The Christians who were burned alive or buried alive or tortured to death by ISIS terrorists were not raptured out in advance. So many Christians just think, well, the tribulation is something we won't go through as opposed to Jesus saying in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. Or, or Paul saying in Acts, was it 14, 22, uh, in, in Antioch, 
we must, through many tribulations, inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, some believers say, yeah, the tribulation, that's the wrath of God. We're exempt from wrath. And of course, God can protect us from his wrath when it's poured out. But there are believers that really have this mentality of suffering hardship won't come our way. It's very much an American idea because most of the rest of the world and the church history would be very foreign idea. So first thing, an escapist mentality. Second thing, not being ready for persecution and hardship when it comes. A third is, when it comes to Israel, the notion that the reason God gathered the Jewish people back to the land was to slaughter them all in one place. Or the idea that the church is raptured to feast in heaven while the Jews experience hell on earth. It, it's kind of a strange idea as opposed to we want to be there right with you in the trenches in your most difficult time. We want to be there standing with you because we're going to be persecuted along with you. So that can be a detriment and the theology itself can, even, even though pre-tribbers have historically been great lovers of Israel and prayed for Israel and believed in the restoration of Israel and we're sometimes ahead of the curve on that, the negative is it's a theology that has an anti-Jewish side. As I said, the church gets raptured because the church only gets good things, and the Jews get cursed and slaughtered because the Jews get the bad things. And when a Jew understands that, that can be very off-putting as well. Plus, I find it unscriptural. The, the Messianic Jewish friends I have, uh, our attitude is we, we're, we're, this is our people. And, and, and the greatest test of all time, we want to be here with our people sharing the good news. And we believe God will allow that to happen. One other end time question I see right here. I'm a little confused about the millennial reign. Will there be temple sacrifice and why? Oh, don't, don't even do that. <laughs> okay. I email him these very questions. So. Right. I'm just up here, I guess. Okay. Part of a frame for Dr. Brown. <laughs> When I have Bob on my radio show, I interview him and ask him the questions that I always wonder about. So it goes both ways. Okay. Um, all right. It is confusing. It's a genuine question that creates puzzlement. Uh, is Ezekiel 40 through 48 a picture of the millennial temple? You see, so what's the millennium? So a belief that was common in the early church and that has been one of the major end-time beliefs is that after Jesus returns, he will establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years, called the millennium. And Israel will be the lead nation in the midst of that. The Gentile nations will learn to worship the God of Israel. Isaiah 2 describes that, you know, they'll, they'll beat sword into plowshare. There'll be no war. Isaiah 11 describes that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That that's the time that Peter speaks of in Acts 3, the restoration of all things that the prophets foretold that this will be the thousand-year period. Revelation 20 identifies it as a thousand years where Jesus will rule and reign over the earth. At the end of that time, Satan, who's been bound, will be loosed, lead the world in a final rebellion against God, will be destroyed, and then we enter into eternity where there's no death, there's no, okay. So thousand-year reign, and those of us that believe Jesus is coming before that time are called premillennial. Some believe that the gospel will go through the whole earth and the whole world will become Christian, and we'll have a thousand-year reign of, of Christianity at the end of which Jesus will return. So that's post-millennial. And then there's some who are amillennial, the ah meaning not. There's not an actual millennium. It just refers to the spiritual rule of Jesus, which is taking place over the earth today. 
So I'm premillennial, we're premillennial. As far as we understand the scriptures, there'll be a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth with Israel as the lead nation. Okay, will there be a temple rebuilt? Does Ezekiel 40 through 48 speak of that time, that beautiful time of God's rule and reign on the earth? If so, why are there blood sacrifices in that temple? Why does the end of Zechariah, the 14th chapter, speak of, of sacrifices being brought and holy vessels for sacrifices? If, in fact, we know from, from Hebrews, the ninth chapter, that the blood of Jesus in the 10th chapter is once for all, and, and because of that, we don't need sacrifices anymore, why would there be animal sacrifices in a millennial kingdom? For a traditional Jew, that's no problem because the traditional Jew doesn't believe in Jesus, so when the temple's rebuilt, there'll be sacrifices. That's wonderful. For Christians, that poses a, a, a problem. Some would say it's all spiritual language, that you have to interpret it all spiritually. Ezekiel's temple, sacrifices, it's all spiritual, and it just means there'll be worship of God, and our lives become living sacrifices, and so on and so forth. That's possible. Another interpretation could be that there will be a literal temple with literal sacrifices and that this will be used by the people of Israel to teach the nations about the ways of God, but this time it'll be done rightly. As the sacrifices from the Old Testament pointed to the cross, the sacrifices in the millennium will point back to the cross. One pointed forward, the other backward. When we take communion, we remember, 1 Corinthians 11, we remember the Lord's death till he comes. So, that reminds us of his death. So some would say that there will be animal sacrifices, and they will remind us of what Jesus did, that the sacrifices in themselves are not effective. What's effective is pointing back to the cross. But it is an honest question. Our expectation would be no future sacrifices because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. If, in fact, there will be, then they'll be pointing back to the cross. Beyond that, it's really speculation. Do you lean in any direction? Do you have an opinion? It seems to me that there'll be a literal temple with literal sacrifices. You can walk through the streets of Jerusalem today and pass by a golden menorah encased and uh, ready to be placed in that temple. And there's the Temple Institute right in the Jewish quarter of the old city. And I think they've even found what they say is the, the red heifer. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you just, you just need... A, of course. A, a red cow without blemish. So every time they think they found one, <laughs> the thing gets older, it develops a blemish. But what I'm saying is in their minds, in now, their minds. Now we further complicate things, shall we? Okay. That shall we what? Further complicate things? That the same things? temple. In other words, we expect that there'll be a third temple built, all right? On the Temple Mount. On the Temple Mount, as far as we can tell, a third temple built, and, and that will be... When that's happening, we know we're even closer to it. And how close, we don't know, but even closer. But that may not be the millennial temple right. because the temple in Ezekiel has different dimensions and all that. Got so it. that third temple may be destroyed and there may be a millennial temple, which, further, which would make that the fourth temple. Great. Awesome. <laughs> but let me, let me just say this one thing. Yeah. Okay? I got burdened to start studying Ezekiel 40 through 48 afresh. To ask God, I've written on it some, volume two of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. I get into it, and I do raise questions whether we should expect it literally or not, based on a number of interesting things in the verses. Because the deal is, that was the temple they were supposed to build when they came back from Babylonian exile. And, and, and 
God's telling Ezekiel, show the plans to the people. And they'll be embarrassed when they see it. And you, you're going to do this and you're going to do that in the temple. So all kinds of questions. In any case, I was praying and thinking, I, I feel like I'm supposed to study this and that God's going to give me insight into these chapters. At the same time that you write to me asking if I have any insights on these chapters, at the same time that I'm ministering at IHOP in Kansas City, and some of the brothers said, would you like some prophetic prayer ministry while you're there? I said, oh, yeah, sure, by all means. Love for you to pray over me and see what the Lord's saying. And two of them had words that God was going to be giving me revelation and insight into Ezekiel's temple. Wow. So that, just wait for the best-selling book, The Secrets of Ezekiel's Temple Revealed. Nice. <laughs> but I haven't, nice. Got, I haven't gotten there yet. I started, made a few notes, but hasn't happened yet. Nice. Well, if you need any help writing that book, you, you, know, you know how to call me. Okay. <laughs> Uh, what, in your opinions, is the primary ministry of Gentile believers to the unbelieving Jews, and how can we more effectively fulfill that purpose? Well, I mean, the, you know, Paul called for that special offering, and of course I'm not going to reduce it just to finances, but that is still you know, a major thing that we do with the burden that one of the earlier questions asked about, you know, with this great burden, it's like, well, let's invest. Let's take some of our material things since we've inherited from them our spiritual. So I know that's very pragmatic and, and basic, but that's pretty blunt in Scripture. So I think that's important. Also, you know, Paul's expectation for the fullness of the Gentiles uh, that I see, of course, as, a, you know, a turning point that would lead to all Israel will be saved. I also see their equality to kingdom life among the nations who believe in Jesus, that have something in the Holy Spirit, in love for one another and the Jewish people, that will actually make them jealous, that will be a sign that they are in fact in covenant with their God. So it, when I pray, uh, when I pray, you know, almost every day I go through, you know, certain lists of things in my mind. When I pray for Israel, I find myself after a while praying for God to restore his people, the church, uh, in the Gentile world so that there's something full and rich to look to that's clearly a contradiction from the history that Dr. Brown just explained for us in his session. It's like, Lord, restore your churches among the Gentiles in the image of Jesus yeah. so that there's something there that would really be a testimony that's undeniable, both the quality of the power of the Holy Spirit and our love for one another. So I see that as our role. That's one of the reasons why I have an urgency and a burden for the church, even in the West, even in America. Um, even though there's, there's, to me, there's so many complications and traditions and things have gotten so convoluted. But I really believe that in the West, if the Gentile churches really conform together, it's a tall order, uh, in, to the image of Jesus, that's, that's one of our roles and calling. You know, Paul said, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. His apostolic ministry among the Gentiles, ironically, is, I think, like a prophetic statement for something that's supposed to happen at the end. So I see that as part of our role. It's part of our responsibility. Yes, yeah, so summary, obviously, you have a, a love for the Jewish people. That's manifest in sharing the gospel with them in a sensitive way. That's manifested in living lives that provoke them to spiritual jealousy. 
that's manifest in financial support, especially of needy believers in Israel. If you're going to give, give through Together for Israel, because a lot of other monies are given, but they're not in association with believers, and, and Christians give sacrificially, and the Jewish people receiving don't, don't even know it came from Christians. So give through a ministry like this. And then by standing with Israel, it doesn't mean we stand against Palestinians, but because we recognize God brought the Jewish people back to the land, and that the world as a whole is set against that, so by default, we stand with Israel. If Israel does wrong, we confront them. If there's injustice towards the Palestinians, we address that. But we stand with them because we recognize that Satan and the world are against them. Those are things we can do as followers of Jesus. But most important is that heart of love that lives a loving life and shares the gospel with sensitivity. That's awesome. I, I have, just the way I remember it, I have four PRs where Israel is concerned. Pray, proclaim, provoke, and provide. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, Psalm 122, Psalm 127, Psalm 122. Got it right the first time. Psalm 122, 27. Psalm 122, 7. <laughs> See, I really know these answers, but I just kind of mess them up so Dr. Brown can correct me. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, we should be praying for our cities, but there's one city in the word that we're called to pray for that oftentimes is absent from our prayer meetings. And let's, you might say, I don't have a burden for Israel. The Bible doesn't say pray for the peace of Jerusalem if you have a burden for Israel. It just says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Watch a burden start coming into you as you pray. You know, you know it's like even, even loving your enemies. Bob talked, a little bit about, Bob talked a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. You, you can't become a kingdom people by just being what you feel. <laughs> There's something more important than your feelings that have to be tapped into to really grab the heart of God. Where Israel is concerned or where your enemies are concerned. I'm not saying Israel's your enemy, but how do, you, how do you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? I mean, if we're called to do that, how much more are we called to embrace Israel as a, as a, a motivation for praying? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Provoke Salvation's come to the nations, as Bob said, to provoke Israel to jealousy. That's Romans 11. We're called to provoke them to jealousy. Proclaim. We, we can't leave Israel out of our evangelistic motivations. Uh, Jeremiah says, proclaim among the kings of the nations, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And then provide, as, as these guys have talked about. Pray, proclaim, provoke, provide. Great. You guys want to add anything else? Okay, what role do the Messianic Jews play at this time in the church? Does a Jewish believer who attends church have a different role than one who attends a Messianic congregation? So answer the second question first. Yes, uh, a Jewish believer in Jesus who attends a church has a different role than a Jewish believer who attends a Messianic congregation. And everyone has to go where called. There's no universal right or wrong in that. Some would try to say there is, that everyone should be in the church or everyone should be in a Messianic congregation. But I believe that God has different callings and purposes for each. So that leads to the first question then. Jews in a Messianic Jewish congregation are shouting to the entire Jewish community, you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And they are providing, <laughs> excuse me, a means by which the next generations can retain a connection with the Jewish people and a connection with Jesus. You can have a mega church in your city 
maybe has 10,000 people in it, and maybe it has 800 Jews, because you're in a you know, heavily Jewish populated area. You got 800, <coughs> 800 Jews in your congregation, right? That's a lot. Um, the Jewish community won't even bat an eyelash about that, won't even think about it. You have a Messianic congregation with 40 people, 20 of whom are Jews, meeting on Saturday, celebrating the feast, and, and that creates much more discussion in the Jewish community and, and is much more of a challenge by saying, yes, here we are as Jews believing in Jesus. And then another role of Messianic congregations is to help the church as a whole remember its Jewish roots. No, we're not supposed to all celebrate the seventh-day Sabbath by command. You know, God didn't give that to the whole church, etc. But Messianic congregations have helped the church realize how far it's swayed from its Jewish roots. So the pendulum swung like this. This will help bring it back. A Jewish believer in a church as a whole might have a role of helping remind that church about the importance of praying for Israel, might have a role of, of, of helping uh, you know, bring them on tours to Israel and connect them more with the Jewish people and, and things like that. So there are going to be different roles and functions. Messianic congregations, like everybody else, can go off the deep end. They can go too far. Jewishness can become more important than Jesus. Gentiles now feel they have to be super Jews and stuff like that. So there's plenty of flaky stuff that happens in Messianic congregations, just like in other congregations. Uh, the key thing is everything needs to be Jesus, Yeshua centered, absolutely. And if you say, but they're being divisive, well, no, the church was divisive in breaking away. They're just going back to the roots in, in that regard. Well, I, I guess I would just remind us um, that in, you know, when Paul wrote Romans, when he wrote 1 Corinthians uh, and, and elsewhere, it's implied that there were both Jews and Gentiles in those con congregations, and it did cause some friction and some issues. So the very mixture and then getting over those things and honoring one another's backgrounds and adding to one another from a Jewish and then even a Gentile perspective, you know, what everyone brings to the table was a, was a, a statement of love uh, toward which Paul was moving his churches. You know, he used those very issues of division to coach them and then create unity. So um, he did envision like that one new man you read about in Ephesians and then the, the mystery of the gospels that we could have a global, you know, community uh, in Messiah consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. So the distinctions are important for the creation of unity. So I would say whatever they are, um, instead of being sources of division, what a Messianic Jew has to offer a congregation like ours, like we, uh, how many Messianic Jews do we have? One part Jew, one half Jew in, in our churches. We have like six churches. We don't have many, but we consciously pursue our Jewish root. We celebrate a Passover once a year. We do other things like that. So we try to learn from our Messianic Jewish members while using all of that as a source of love and unity rather than of division. Uh, there was a question that was handed over the break. It said, uh, Dr. Brown, you mentioned two holidays, Passover and Easter, it, just to go along with what Bob just said. Which is more biblical for believers in Jesus to celebrate? The ideal is you celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus in the midst of the Passover. Right? That's, that's ideal as opposed to a separate holiday. And obviously, we are Jesus-centered. The, the great highlight for us, yes, the exodus from Egypt is important, but what we're going to celebrate and focus on is the death and resurrection of the Messiah as the ultimate liberator and as the Passover lamb. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that 
Messiah, our Passover, meaning our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. All right, and, and then let's get rid of the leaven. Now, he's writing to the Corinthians, some of whom were God-fearing Gentiles. They were in the synagogue. They were worshiping the God of Israel, but they did not convert to Judaism. Then Paul preached, and they were some of the first that followed Jesus and now became full-fledged members of the family of God without converting to Judaism. So they were familiar with these things. And Bob's far more expert on 1 Corinthians than I am background and all that he did his dissertation on that. But th the point is this, that they were familiar with the concept of Passover. In 1 Corinthians 15, he references twice Jesus' resurrection from the dead as being first fruits. They were familiar with what followed Passover, which was first fruits. So even though there were Gentile believers mainly making up that congregation, he could talk to them about Passover and first fruits. They were familiar with it. So if I was having a congregation and, and, and wanting to do things in a biblical way as best as I could, whenever the Jewish community celebrated the Passover, that week is when I would celebrate the death and resurrection of the Messiah. So even though it would put me at a different calendar than maybe Easter Sunday somewhere else, that's what I would do. If I was in a church that was so ingrained with you know, Easter calendar and Easter Sunday and all of that, I would not get away from that. I would still celebrate that, but somewhere during that time, I would have a Passover commemoration. I would do something to, to try to tie it together. So you never, whatever you do, you always keep Yeshua Jesus central. Yeah. His death, his resurrection, his return, that is always central. That's what everything is pointing towards. But it's not a separation. So, so just to explain really quick, and you'll see it in the video tonight. When, when you celebrate Christmas, what date is it? December 25th. December 25th. If you celebrate <laughs> Christmas or not, it's still, okay. It's not a, it could be a Sunday, <laughs> could be a Wednesday, could be anything, right? When do you celebrate Thanksgiving? <laughs> Sorry, I get choked up talking about Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> when do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Is it the last Thursday? It's either the third or fourth. I thought it was the fourth Thursday. Third. Okay. Okay, but it's always a Thursday, right? Okay. There was a division in the early church between the East and the West that one group said that we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus on a fixed day. So it's always a Friday and, then of course, the resurrection on a Sunday. It doesn't matter what, what day of the week, uh, what, what the calendar date is. We, we do it based on... A day like Thanksgiving is always a Thursday. An another part of the church said that we remember these things during the Passover, and therefore, when the Jewish community would say, "This is the Passover," because remember, you got new moons, and that's you know that's how you got to determine calendar and things like that. That when the Jewish community celebrates the Passover, that's when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the 14th of Nisan, whenever that falls, that's when the Passover starts, and during that time, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Constantine made a decree in, in the fourth century, that's when things changed, when he said, we don't want to be connected to the Jews. We don't want to do this when they do it and be dependent on their calendar. We do it based on a fixed day. That's where the separation came. Isn't today the last day of Passover? I believe the last, last night. Was it so I don't know whether it, ends, it ended last night or ended, ends today. Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, yeah. yeah. So either way, yeah. There was some overlap, so it's interesting timing. That we're here. Of course, yeah, we're holding this at a church where Jeremiah Johnson 
yeah. is, you know, leads. So there's going to be some prophetic significance. Yeah. Um, and then tomorrow is the Orthodox Easter. I just saw tomorrow my, is the Orthodox Easter. <laughs> but I just That's saw that by mistake in my calendar. Good. Just it's yeah. being funny. Yeah. Can we do this, bro? <laughs> we can do anything. I don't know if it's right, but but um, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you. This will lead into it. Can I tell a little joke? Sure. So there was um, uh, an idea that uh, the Pope and a chief rabbi had to have a golf competition, and um, so some years back. And they said, look, you pick your best golfer, and we pick our best golfer, and, um, and go from there. So the, the Vatican reaches out to Jack Nicklaus, uh, this is some years back when he was still playing, they reach out to Jack Nicklaus, who's maybe the greatest golfer ever, and they said, listen, we'd like you to golf for us, but we, we want to we wanna make you Catholic, we want to make you an honorary Catholic. And uh, he said, great, I'll do it, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So. Uh, they, the Pope gets a report, it's unbelievable. Jack Nicholas, phenomenal, was 24 under par after four rounds, one of the greatest <laughs> rounds of golf everyone ever had seen. It's wonderful. He said, yeah, they said, but Rabbi Tiger Woods was completely on fire. <laughs> anyway, okay, so, so I was gonna ask if we could make Jeremiah an honorary Jew. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Sure. Sure. Well, speaking, speaking of Jeremiah, the... Yeah, instead of JJM, it's JJJ, Jeremiah Jewish Johnson. It just kind of worked for the... 3J. So, so this is literally the question on here. It says, Jeremiah feels that the USA is closely allied with Israel. I'm assuming that's not the prophet Jeremiah, but this Jeremiah. Um, therefore, when... Uh, there, there's a... I'll just read it. Therefore... When Israel is overwhelmed by the Antichrist, what will be our situation? Well, we'll be raptured out of here by then. Of course we will. <laughs> okay. Will America one day turn against Israel? Maybe. Why do I say maybe and not definitely yes or no? Well, I can't find specific prophecy in Scripture that says definitely yes. Does, does Scripture say all nations will turn right, against so Israel? Right, so that's the question. Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14 when God brings all nations against Jerusalem. There, there are three ways to read it. All nations, the, the, the smallest way of reading it would be all surrounding nations, but that seems unlikely, but possible. All nations could just be generic for the vast majority of nations on the earth, like all Jerusalem went out to hear John preach, or you know, sometimes you have all used, and it's used in a general way, not for every last one, there but... There still can be exceptions. Right, there can be exceptions. Or all nations, literally means all nations, and every nation on the planet will turn against Israel. Mm. So is it possible that America one day will turn on Israel? Could be. We, we, don't, uh, we don't know. In other words, the scripture would seem to point in that direction. Uh, on the other hand, America's defied a lot of things historically, the way God's raised us up. Will there be such a deep apostasy in America? that this is something that we actually do. Um, one of my friends, a pro-life leader for over, <laughs> over 40 years, was talking about some positive progress in one state, but he said, Mike, things are so bad that, that with, if we lose one election, everything could suddenly shift in the most radically pro-abortion way we've ever seen. That he said, we're just one election away. And mm -hmm. it could be the same with Israel. And, and, and here's the deal that there have been nations where Jews have lived for centuries and then suddenly the nation turned on them. Or, or waves of, of 
of anti-Semitism at different times, but you had millions and millions of Jews living in the former Soviet Union, and then at a certain point, many had to flee. Many are fleeing Paris now, fleeing England now, and things like that, uh, where they've been at home for centuries and centuries and centuries. So could it ha is there a guarantee in scripture that America will not turn against Israel? No. Do I keep hoping that it won't, or at least, at least today we can do our best that that doesn't happen, and tomorrow we can do our best, but is it gonna happen eventually? It's very possible. I'd, I'd like to just ask a follow-up to that, because when you say all nations will turn against Israel might not mean every single nation, how do you feel about the scripture in Romans 11 when it says all Israel shall be saved? It'd be the same thing, that it's not necessarily every last Jew on the planet, but a national turning. For example, uh, Jeremiah 31, 1, at that time, God will be the God of all the families of Israel, all right? Or, or Zechariah 12, 10 to Zechariah 13, 1, where there's mass repentance when they look on him and they've pierced. Will every single Jew on the planet get saved? It's possible, but I've never seen it like that. I've seen it as a mass national turning. And, that, and, and all Israel, often all Israel in scripture is used to speak of the bulk, to speak of the, the general, uh, all Israel sometimes just refers to the 10 tribes as opposed to uh, the southern tribes. So I, I'd love to see that it's every last Jew on the planet. Uh, could God orchestrate it like that? He could. I'm not a Calvinist. In other words, I don't believe that God just predestines, okay, all of you are going to be saved and, and these others won't. But it doesn't necessarily mean every last person. But a, just like we would say today, Jews don't believe in Jesus that the Jews believe in Jesus, that that is what's happened on a national level. So it would be a parallel usage of all. Right. Do you have anything else? All right. Any, any burning questions on anybody's heart that they want to ask? Gentleman in a blue shirt with a nice haircut. Well, a, a few things. First, I appreciate your heart. That's very positive. Second, I would ask God on a regular basis to bring me in contact with Jews and even Israelis here. There are plenty of Jews all over America, millions and millions, and there are plenty of Israelis in America. And it's, it's always good, you know, if someone's going to go on the mission field as an evangelist, they need to live as an evangelist here. So I would look for divine appointments. I would, I would pray for opportunities. Many times in a mall, you'll find Israelis working at kiosks and things. It's easy enough to find them, especially to pray for, for divine appointments. I would do that. Secondly, uh, anyone go to Israel. You don't need a visa to get in. You just go there, you know, on, on tour with a tour group, or you go there just to go around on your own. Um, and and uh, while you're there, you look for divine appointments to share the gospel. If you, if you came in as a foreigner and were causing disruption on the streets and shouting for people to repent, and they realize you're a foreigner, that, yeah, that could get you kicked out for being disruptive. But otherwise, if, as long as you're allowed to stay, uh, you can share the gospel every day. You could sit and meet with people, look for divine appointments. And 
the, the big question, you know, how do you do it from the scriptures? I've written five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. We have whole courses on that that help sensitize people in, in those things and deal with the objections that come your way. But the biggest thing is to um, familiarize yourself with the history, as I talked about it, uh, to continue to learn the Jewish roots of the faith, to read from a, a messianic translation of the Bible, like uh, the Tree of Life version or the complete Jewish Bible. That will sensitize you more and then to share in a relational way um, of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, to keep trying to go back to the scriptures and the roots and, and recognize that the church has often gotten it wrong in these, in these other ways. That's great. Those are some of the things I'd suggest. That's great. Uh, we're going to do one more question, I, uh, and we'll go to the gentleman in the back. But uh, I just want to say that there are Messianic congregations in Israel now that are taking young people out on the streets, seeing people who are in need, asking them if they can pray for them, praying for them, seeing signs and wonders immediately opening hearts up to the God of Israel. It, it's phenomenal. So I think there's a misnomer when you say it's, not you say, but people think it's illegal to preach the gospel in Israel. I think uh, it's illegal to proselytize kids, but I don't think that um, demonstrating the power of the gospel is um, outside of the boundaries of what God really has enabled us to do and, and, and lives are being yeah, changed. The, the sensitivity has to be this, that Israel, one of their biggest economic foundations is tourism. So there are massive numbers of Christian tourists that come in constantly. And Israel welcomes them. They're glad to have them. They're glad to, with a history of being hated by the world, they're glad yeah, to yeah. have this support. Uh, it's an industry for them as well. But it's not like no one's ever shown up wanting to witness to them. You know what I'm saying? It's, you've got uh, several million tourists a year, I think, yeah. coming in. So Israel's constantly flooded with this. And that's why it has to be divine appointments, the Holy Spirit's leading, yeah. as opposed to, okay, I'm the latest guy with a Christian t-shirt that's going to tell you something that you've never heard before. <laughs> right. Uh, now, if you went into a religious Jewish area, first you wouldn't have any hearing. You know, you're a foreigner, you're an outsider, you're not dressed like them, you don't look like them. Uh, and if you started to preach, you, you'd be in trouble. They, they would get you out of there in a hurry, and they wouldn't wait for police to come. Uh, yeah. But... That's something I wouldn't even do. Even a setting like that, if I was going to do it, I'd look for a divine appointment and a right person yeah. to speak to. Uh, because that I would know I'm going in being disruptive and offensive, and it's going to create an uproar rather than fruit. Yeah, great. All right, really quickly, last question. And please don't leave until we're done. Go ahead. Should we read, study the book of Enoch uh, along with the Bible, or should we forget it? Yeah, I've got a video on it um, on my website, askdrbrown.org. You just type in Enoch. But in short, Enoch's not part of the Bible. It never was part of the Bible. If you're in, in the Ethiopic church, Ethiopian church, it's part of the canon. It was widely revered by early Jews and early Christians, but it never became part of the Jewish canon, so it's not part of the Jewish Bible. And it never became part of the Christian canon. So read it. Find it interesting. Jude quotes it one time. Uh, there may be lines in it that go back to Enoch, but the book as a whole was written much later, actually a series of books. Um, and, yeah, there's no, it was never forbidden. 
There was no one ever stopped people from reading it. It was widely read in the early church and, and was widely read by early Jews, but never part of scripture. So read it as a fascinating book from that time with some insights and some odd things, but not as scripture, and not in any way right. looked at as scripture. But remember, no one has secretly kept this out, like this campaign to stop people from reading it. There was never an edict, you know, no one's allowed to read it. It's just wasn't part of the Bible and wasn't as well preserved, and therefore people are not as familiar with it. If you, if you read it, I've never studied all of it myself, but if you read it, some of it's very interesting and gives background to what was thought at that time and sheds light on verses and concepts. Um, uh, my friend Michael Heiser has a whole book about that, you know, the importance of Enoch, etc. cetera. Uh, but you also see some things that seem very strange and odd and different. And, and, you know, God knew what he was doing by giving us the, what he did in Scripture. That's awesome. Just want to tell you about uh, just a few quick things. And then I have one last thing. Okay, great. Uh, so on the resource tables out there. That's it. Uh, I just want to tell you about two things that are on our table. My book that, uh, that's coming out, you can, you can pre-order it there. Jesus was not a Christian. But these two things, I'm actually helping Messianic Jewish people in Israel this is anointing oil. It's not more special than olive oil from Piddly Widley or whatever the name of your grocery stores are here. I don't believe that oil from Israel is any more anointed than oil from anywhere. However, let me just tell you about this. It's frankincense and myrrh that's produced in Israel. And um, it's a company run by Messianic Jews over there who employ handicapped people who normally wouldn't be able to work who produce this oil, and, um, and they distribute it around Israel. And because I want to help them, we, we get this oil for them. So if you're looking for anointing oil and you want something other than olive oil, uh, this is on the table. And then this is really cool. How many of you know what a mezuzah is? Mezuzah, th this is remarkable. On every mezuzah is the letter shin or sheen, however, however you say it. And it's, it's, it's like this three-pronged fork, actually. And the letter Shin stands for Shaddai, which is really the Lord's name, God Almighty. And in Deuteronomy 6, a prayer that every Jew prays called the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then immediately below that, the Lord says, you, you need to you need to write these things down and attach it to your forehead and on the doorposts of your home. And these are amazing. And this is also manufactured by a Messianic company over there. It's mezuzah, and we've got scrolls on the table. So if you purchase either of these things, just know that you're going to help support believers in Israel. Finally, um, there are cards that are on everybody's chair or at the table. Uh, the Lord, I'm dreaming big. I'm just dreaming big. And uh, I remember when I, when I first started Together for Israel, I thought how cool it would be to give a million dollars away. And we actually almost did that last year. So that, that, I mean, that little million is being blown out. But I know the Lord spoke to me specifically with regard to partners. And um, I'm believing for 10,000 partners. And we're, we're a tenth of the way there, just under a tenth of the way there. Uh, because that would really enable us to do, uh, we, could, we could change Israel. And a partner is just somebody who's willing to stand with us $20 or more a month. 
And um, everywhere we go, I'm just so blessed by churches and people. There are, there are businesses that are giving thousands of dollars a month. And then there's my friend in Bemidji, Minnesota, who gives $5 a month. And she calls me her favorite rabbi. And I'm not a rabbi, but I let her call me whatever she wants. <laughs> because I'll, and, and every time I see her, she just up from $5 to $10 last year. I can't tell you. I remember that. God, and it's, it's interesting to me that in Scripture, it's not the amount that's remembered, but it's the heart in which it's given. And whenever I do anything in Israel and somebody comes over and thanks me, I, I don't say it's from me, you're welcome. What I say is this is from believers, Christians around the world who love Israel and who love the God of Israel. And I would love for you to partner with us if the Lord puts that in your heart. Please fill out one of those cards before the conference is over. We're going to be drawing a name for a free trip to Israel from one of those. And, and for sure, stop at uh, Doc Brown's table. Yeah, so yeah, make sure you get our hands restrained the flood and not afraid of the Antichrist. I was just checking something, but bad news. The original fragments of the cross on our table, they're all gone. The factory in New Jersey is fell behind. Oh, okay. So we don't have but can they pre-order the original fragments of the yeah, cross? Yeah, the factory's going to have Okay. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, would you, why, don't, why don't you pray over these folks before we go? And, and can I just tell you one thing? Well, let's stand together. And I hope this is okay, Jeremiah. And I hope this is okay, Dr. Brown. <laughs> but as I was sitting here this morning, and Bob, you too, I hope it's okay. As I was sitting here this morning, I'm just going to tell you what I saw in my spirit with regard to tonight. I feel like Dr. Brown's um, commissioned to not only bring a message of hope uh, and revival where Israel is concerned, but I also really strongly feel that the message tonight is for hope and revival where you're concerned. And I don't know whether, I, I can't remember the last time I was with Dr. Brown when, when there was a time of prayer afterwards where he laid hands on people. I'm not even going to say that that's going to happen tonight. But I feel like God wants to really do something powerful tonight. This isn't a gimmick to get you to come tonight. I don't care if you come. I just know that whoever's here that God's going to move in a specific way, and I want to encourage you to come. I want to encourage you to get the word out. Invite your friends. You do care if they come. Well, I definitely care if you come. I care if you come, <laughs> but I won't dislike you if you don't. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, yes, I care if you come. I care if you come, but I'm not saying this in a manipulative way to get you here. I'm telling you, I really believe God's going to move significantly tonight through the word and, and through ministry. So... Yeah, I don't, you don't say that often. I, I don't know that I've ever said it. No, so, amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Abba, we ask for your smile on your people. They're here, Lord, representing a remnant of the church in this region. They're here because of love for you and love for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I pray you'll use every single person here, either through their prayer, through their giving, through their witness, through their lifestyle, You'll use every single one of them to bless the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to challenge and strengthen your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.